Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Hey, Gary. Today, we'll be discussing the Supreme Court's grant of cert in Moore versus United States. We'll discuss the facts of the case, the procedural history, and the substantive issues underlying the case. We'll also discuss the potential outcomes, as well as what taxpayers should be thinking about regarding Section 965 and Moore's potential impact. For this discussion, we're joined today by Marius Lonina, a managing director in KPMG's WNT Practice Procedure and Administration, or PPNA tax practice, and Dan Winnick, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Both Dan and Mary are new to this podcast, so welcome. Thanks for having us, Gary. Thanks, Gary. So let's jump right into today's topic, the Moore case. On June 26, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the taxpayers' appeal in Moore. While this case will specifically resolve the constitutionality of the mandatory repatriation tax under Section 965 as it applies to the Moors, it also may have much broader implications depending on how the case is ultimately decided. As a quick refresher, Section 965 required a U.S. shareholder to pay a one-time tax on a CFC's accumulated post-1986 ENP for tax years ending on or after December 31, 2017. However, taxpayers had the ability to elect to pay this liability through installment payments over eight years. As we'll discuss today, the taxpayer's argument in the case is that this mandatory repatriation tax is unconstitutional because it taxes unrealized amounts and, as a result, is not an income tax that's exempted under the 16th Amendment from apportionment among the states. Before diving into the nuances of the case, Dan, can you give us a quick summary of the facts? Thanks, Kristen. Yes, so the taxpayers are Charles and Kathleen Moore, who are two individuals, citizens of the United States. And in 2006, they invested $40,000 into Kizencraft, an Indian company founded by a friend in exchange for just over 10% of the corporation's common shares. The case record stipulates that Kizencraft is a CFC, but we don't exactly know why. Kizencraft was profitable, so it had deferred foreign earnings for purposes of Section 965, but it reinvested those earnings. It didn't make any distributions. Due to Section 965's enactment, the Moors owed $15,000 of tax for their share of the Kissingcraft earnings. Thanks, Dan. So let me get this straight. The taxpayers are challenging the constitutionality of Section 965 for a $15,000 tax liability. Presumably, the legal fees alone are significantly more than the $15,000 at issue. Why would these particular taxpayers challenge this for such a small amount? This case appears to be a test case and not about the amount of liability. The Moors have substantial support from very expensive lawyers. And as you said, the amount of legal fees likely exceeds by several times the amount of the liability in question. This case has also been set up as a case to challenge potential wealth tax proposals. Also, this case has pretty sympathetic facts. 
There have been no distributions from Kissingcraft, and these are minority investors who cannot force distributions. So I think that among all the potential 965 litigants, the Moors may have been selected because their facts are so sympathetic. That makes sense. The Supreme Court granted cert in this case, but how did it get from the taxpayers' requests for a refund all the way up to the Supreme Court? Can you provide some background on the procedural history here? Sure. So the Moors paid the tax when they filed for their tax return and the IRS denied the refund. The Moors filed in U.S. District Court for a refund and the District Court granted the government's motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim. The taxpayers then appealed to the Ninth Circuit, who held in a unanimous panel opinion that the mandatory repatriation tax under Section 965 was constitutional. The taxpayers then applied for rehearing at the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit denied their request for rehearing and rehearing on bank, but over the dissent of several judges. Taxpayers petitioned for cert at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court granted cert. Okay, so now that we understand the facts and the procedural history of the case, what arguments did the taxpayer and more make in the lower courts to say that Section 965 is unconstitutional? In the lower courts, the Moors had two constitutional arguments. The first was that the tax imposed by Section 965 does not qualify as an income tax under the 16th Amendment because the realization principle is an element of an income tax, and without realization, a tax is not an income tax. They argued that they had never derived or realized any income from their investment in Kissingcraft because earnings were reinvested and never distributed to shareholders. And for this reason, they claim that 965 is effectively a direct tax that's not apportioned among the states, and so it violates the apportionment clause of the Constitution. Their second argument was a due process claim. So even if Section 965 was an income tax, because it's being applied retroactively on all the earnings of controlled foreign corporations from 1986 to 2017, it violates their due process rights to be subject to a tax imposed after the years with those earnings have ended. So you mentioned that the district court and the Ninth Circuit, in affirming the district court, held that Section 965 is constitutional. What was their reasoning? Well, the district court accepted the government's arguments on the constitutionality of Section 965. And district court looked to a number of lower court cases that have found the subpart F to be constitutional. Those cases have generally held that income earned by a controlled foreign corporation can be attributed up to its shareholder. And there are several tax court cases and circuit court cases that have that holding, but none of those actually got to the Supreme Court. Then in the Ninth Circuit, similarly, the court again looked to cases where income was accrued but not received by a shareholder, including some circuit court cases on the old foreign personal holding company rules, and also some cases dealing with partnership taxation. So partnerships are another example of a situation where a taxpayer can earn money indirectly and in some cases not have a way of forcing a distribution from the partnership up to the partner, but that income is still attributed to the ultimate partner. So the Supreme Court is scheduled to take up more in its fall term, which begins in October. Mary, will the Supreme Court hear all of the claims from the lower court cases that Dan just walked through? And then what is the specific question that's presented in the case before the Supreme Court? 
So as Dan outlined, there are really two constitutional arguments that the Moors had presented at the lower level courts, whether the 16th Amendment authorized Congress to tax unrealized sums without apportionment amongst the states. And then also they argued that the transition tax was unconstitutional due to due process claims. The Moors have moved forward and filed in their cert petition only the 16th Amendment claim. They dropped the due process claim. No explanation behind that. You can certainly speculate, but they're only moving forward with whether the transition tax is in violation of the 16th Amendment. And then part and parcel of that 16th Amendment claim, the Moors are also saying that the Ninth Circuit opinion contradicts prior Supreme Court precedents with respect to realization of income. And those particular cases that they cite are Eisner v. McComber and Commissioner v. Glenshaw Glass. Thanks, Mary. So as already noted, the stakes in terms of the amount in controversy are exceedingly low, about $15,000 or the value of a well-maintained 2016 Ford Focus. So who wins this case, whether it be the Moors or the government, is much less important than why the victor is victorious. So for this next segment, let's look into our crystal balls and at least try to look into the future a bit. A word of warning to all, our crystal balls are just as cloudy as yours. Dan, the Supreme Court doesn't review tax cases very often, probably because they are invariably complex and boring to everyone except us. This is true, especially when the government opposes cert and there's no split in the circuits on the issue presented, such as in this case with respect to 965. What does the grant of cert in this case tell us? Well, the only thing we know for sure is that at least four justices agreed to grant cert to this case to give a full review of the Ninth Circuit opinion. One source of uh, information for our crystal ball might be the dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk that was filed in the Ninth Circuit. That dissent suggested that Section 965 was, as we said, a tax on ownership of a CFC rather than properly being viewed as an income tax and that it would open the door to taxes that really are wealth taxes. So the interest in wealth taxes that the Ninth Circuit dissenters might have motivated the Supreme Court to take up this case. Also in the circuit court opinion, the opinion dismisses a bit Eisner v. McCumber as limited to its facts based on Glenshaw Glass. And it's possible that the Supreme Court wanted to take a closer look at its precedent being narrowed quite to the extent it was. But ultimately, we're just speculating at this point. We don't exactly know why they took up this case. I think what's interesting about this case is all the potential outcomes from all of TCJ being validated to a very narrow victory for the Moors or or a sweeping victory for the government. So, Dan, what are some of the potential outcomes of the case? You don't have to handicap the probability of any outcome, but but what are the potential outcomes? So as you said, there is a range of potential outcomes, and it will matter as much who wins the case as 
how the Supreme Court explains its reasoning because its reasoning could apply to many other provisions of the code. So one potential outcome is that the Supreme Court agrees with the Ninth Circuit, affirms the case, and limits the application of a realization principle. Or the Supreme Court says that the realization requirement is satisfied in this case, for example, by treating 965 as a tax on income earned from 1986 to 2017. And both those outcomes would largely leave intact Congress's ability to deem income even when there is not cash in hand. The petition also emphasized the lack of control that the Moors had to cause a distribution. So they could fine for the Moors in this case, but base their decision on the lack of control to cause distribution. So the holding might only be relevant to minority shareholders. And then there would be a bunch of questions, for example, about how you deal with related parties and what it really means to be in control. So that would be a rather narrow decision, but it would still leave open a lot of additional questions that would have to be handled in litigation. Another possible outcome is that 965 could be found to be unconstitutional on these facts, but perhaps limited only to individual shareholders. This would be based on a case called Flint v. Stone Tracy that treated a corporate income tax as an excise on the corporate form. Rather, this was before the 16th Amendment. The problem with that is Section 965 by its own terms, applies to shareholders regardless of whether they're corporations or individuals. So it would take a little bit of further reasoning for the Supreme Court to really emphasize that this decision only applies to individuals. Finally, they could say that Section 965 violates the 16th Amendment because it taxes income that's not realized. And then that would raise questions about many provisions in the code. That is a strict realization principle at the taxpayer where you don't look through to realization in in an entity that a taxpayer owns raises questions about many, many provisions of the code. Finally, some commentators have asked whether the decision in this case could implicate other provisions in TCJA because, of course, If Section 965 is unconstitutional, TCGA wouldn't have met its reconciliation instructions. Now, the reconciliation instructions are normally relevant only when a bill is moving through Congress. They normally don't impact how the bill is treated after the bill is signed into law. Also, it's important to remember that the Internal Revenue Code itself has a separability clause. So for those reasons, I think that it's unlikely that this could bring down all of TCJA, even if there's a relatively broad holding. Yeah, so your point, Dan, was I believe the reconciliation instructions allowed the TCJA to increase the deficit by some amount. I think it was like one and a half trillion. And the 965 revenue was essential to keep it within that window and 965 being gone, if 965 weren't enacted, it is true, none of the TCJ would have been enacted. But that doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion that unconstitutional 965 leads to the fall of all TCJ. But obviously, there's some conjecture on that point. If the court rules that 965 is unconstitutional, 
based on a non-realization constitutional requirement, it would seem to have far-reaching consequences. Dan, what are the other code provisions that might immediately become suspect? So as we said, this case is only about Section 965, and the holding in this case is likely only to provide direct guidance on how Section 965 is treated. But the reasoning might implicate many other sections of the code where a taxpayer can have income before they have cash. So an obvious next step if Section 965 is unconstitutional would be to look to guilty in subpart F because they tax a shareholder before income is distributed. Similarly, mark-to-market regimes, especially mandatory mark-to-market regimes, such as the regime under Section 1256 or for some taxpayers under Section 475, would be called into question. Also, flow-through regimes where, especially for minority partners, for example, could be called into question, where perhaps there are contractual agreements where a certain partner doesn't have right to distribute income to match its taxable income. And an extreme version might really look to accrual regime. So any situation where a taxpayer has income but doesn't have cash in hand. So the uh, original issue discount rules have also been raised as a potential uh, casualty if Section 965 is found unconstitutional. But that relies on a rather extreme version of constitutional requirement that income means cash in hand, which would be pretty novel based on the history of even Supreme Court case law dealing with the income tax. It could definitely lead to some chaos in the tax code. So we've discussed the potential outcomes if the court ends up ruling on the case. But Mary, is there any way that the Supreme Court could end up not hearing or declining to rule on the case? Or is it possible that they've decided that they've bitten off more than they can chew? Well, anything's possible, Gary. But getting to really the heart of that question, my first statement is always, listen, a case could not make it all the way through based on an actual motion for lack of standing or lack of jurisdiction. Of course, there's no indication that that's applicable in the Moore's case. But what has happened recently in another tax tangential case that I think keeps this option alive in a lot of people's minds is the Supreme Court does have a procedure to dismiss a case as improvidently granted. This is often referred to as a case being digged, the shorthand for dismissed as improvidently granted, because that's what the Supreme Court would provide. And what this digged procedure is, in essence, the court declines to move the case forward. It dismisses the case, and it can dismiss the case under these digged procedures at any point. It could dismiss them after briefing. It could dismiss them after oral argument. And what it's providing is that the court discovers, after having granted cert, some circumstance or facts that would have led them to deny cert if those circumstances or facts had been known to them earlier. And getting back to kind of the case in mind is in the last session, there was kind of a a tax tangential case on attorney-client privilege in the context of tax advice that was digged in January during the last term after oral argument. So that's why I think in the tax community, the concept of dig is is kind of top of mind. 
And when the dismissal is issued, the court provides no other context behind it. So if you took a, a look at the digged order with respect to the NRE grand jury, it is, I believe, just one sentence that it was dismissed as improvidently granted. Yeah, my theory is that if this really is ultimately about the wealth tax, I think the court could decide that this is not the right tax case to litigate that issue. And and who knows, maybe they'll decide to dig it. So Yeah, well, just to add to that, I mean, I know there, you know, a lot of the setup has been, oh, this is a case that comes forward. There's no split in the circuit. It, it's pretty much a straight shot through the Ninth Circuit. And I know, Gary, I've certainly read commentary on the potential for digging in the sense of the court is going to need more in front of them. And maybe when they get more in front of them, and it could, again, go to oral after briefing, after all our arguments and end up in that position once they really see the lay of the land of what this case is about. Yeah, I dig it. So there, there are many <laughs> potential outcomes of the case, and we'll have to wait until June 2024 to see how this case is ultimately resolved. However, in the meantime, there are some practical steps that taxpayers should consider taking to protect their interests in anticipation of resolution. Mary, what should taxpayers be thinking about while we await the uh, court's decision in the Moore case? So, I mean, the first and foremost on taxpayers' minds is if 965 is determined to be unconstitutional and I'm a taxpayer that's paid 965 tax, can I get a refund? And of course, the good old fashioned lawyer answer is it depends. First and foremost, I think the general principle is even though the court might come out and say that the tax is unconstitutional, that doesn't necessarily automatically create a right to a refund of the tax paid. And so where we really start is asking the question of can the taxpayer make a refund claim of any Section 965 tax that was paid pursuant to the period of limitations provided under 6511. And so in essence, what we're saying is even if 965 is declared unconstitutional, a taxpayer would have to file a, a timely refund claim under the period of limitations provided under 6511. And so to dig a little more down, down that path, generally speaking, we go to the overarching rule of a refund claim being timely under 6511, which provides that a taxpayer has a three-year period to claim a refund and that three years is measured from the timely filing, inclusive of an extension of the relevant income tax return. So as we sit here in 2023 and we think to taxpayers having paid the transition tax in 17 or 18, we're outside that frame to claim a refund under that general three-year statute. However, there are two situations we could envision where a taxpayer might be able to claim a refund if the Section 965 tax is determined to be unconstitutional, because in those two potential situations, the statute to claim a refund remains open. So our first situation is when we have a taxpayer that has an open statute for 17 or 18, whichever year or years the transition tax was paid, because those years have actually been extended for assessment due to an examination with the IRS. 
So for example, a lot of times when taxpayers enter an examination with the IRS, the IRS asks that taxpayer to extend their assessment statute under 6501 to allow the IRS to assess tax within a larger time frame than the general three-year window under 6501. And because of a variety of strategic reasons, taxpayers often do agree to extend that 6501 assessment period. But what happens is there's a mirror rule that when a taxpayer and the IRS extend the assessment statute and agree to the extension, that the 6511 refund statute is also extended. And it's not only extended in tandem with the agreed upon extension of 6501, the 6511 statute is extended plus six months from whenever the agreed upon extension for 6501 is. So in that context, if you are a taxpayer that is under examination or even the examination could have even wrapped up, but that statute extension is still in place and still open, that could be a potential avenue to make a claim for refund if 965 is determined to be unconstitutional. And then we have the second situation, which I had started this conversation with. There's the general three-year period to claim a refund from filing a tax return. The second situation is actually a different rule under 6511, where if that three-year period is closed, a taxpayer can make a refund claim for any tax paid within a two-year look-back period from the date of the refund claim. So to maybe flesh that out and give actual context to it, we have taxpayers that made an election under 65H to pay the 965 transition tax over an eight-year period in eight-year installments. And so under this two-year look-back period of 6511, what we'd be saying is if as of today, you look back two years from today, so some point in July 2023 back to July 2021, any payments you made towards that transition tax, you can claim a refund for, even though you're outside the three-year general rule of 6511. So that's the second situation we can envision is that if a taxpayer is under that eight-year installment plan per the 965H election, they could potentially use that two-year look back to claim a refund if 965 is determined to be unconstitutional. Of course, also, if I haven't driven this point home, only payments within that two-year look back period, nothing before that two-year look back period. And that potentially impacts people who overpaid their 965 liability and, and weren't able to get a refund. The IRS treated that as a prepayment of the installment payment. And so those payments could be lost. And it should be noted, I mean, in all cases, the installment plan under 965H backloads the payment of the 965 liability. So fortunately, even if some of the early years are lost, that, that could still be very lucrative for later years. Mary, can a taxpayer file a protective refund claim? So Gary, yeah, in the context of protective, 
what we're where we're sitting at today is we're still waiting on the outcome of more. The case hasn't even been briefed. Parties haven't even briefed the case yet. And there's a potential we won't even have a determination from the Supreme Court until June of 2024. So if you're a taxpayer sitting here and you say to yourself, oh, my statute is open. It's either open for 1718, the years of the transition tax, because of an agreement with the IRS to extend the assessment statute, or I'm sitting here and I could make a claim within that two-year look-back period due to payments made under the installment election. But the statute, the relevant statute, is going to expire before we have a decision on more. So what do I need to do? And there is a well-established procedure. There's Supreme Court cases on this. The IRS does recognize it in their own guidance as to a protective refund claim. And a protective refund claim, in general, it's filing a refund claim, marking it as protective and filing it with the IRS before the applicable statute of limitations is going to close on the period to make the refund claim. And it's telling the IRS, I have this potential refund allowance, but there is an outstanding contingency that needs to be determined before I can formalize this refund claim. That contingency will not be determined before the period of limitations under 6511 runs. Therefore, the taxpayer says to the IRS, I'm filing this claim protectively. Please hold it until the contingency is resolved. And once the contingency was resolved, and particularly if the contingency is resolved in the taxpayer's favor, such that a refund is due and owing, the taxpayer will come in at a later date and submit a perfected refund claim in conjunction with the protective claim they had filed prior to the statute running. And that perfected refund claim will be considered timely based on the date of the protected refund claim. Mary, ultimately, the implication of the case is not just about 965. The Supreme Court will decide on 965, but it could have implications for guilty, mark-to-mark mm-hmm. accounting, Should taxpayers consider making a protective refund claim for other tax provisions like guilty? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a question we've been getting. It's certainly something that taxpayers should consider. I think one of the procedural things to be very aware of with respect to not only protective refund claims, but refund claims in general, is if you submit a refund claim, and the IRS disagrees with it wholeheartedly, and they reject it, they disallow the claim, and they send it back to you, that starts a two-year window in which the taxpayer has a right to go to district court to challenge the denial of the refund claim. But it closes off any avenues back to the IRS to make the refund claim again, because usually at that point, the statute of limitations has closed. And so the IRS would say, we're not going to let you take another bite at the apple in hearing your refund claim. So here you have a two-year allowance to go to district court. Why I make that distinction, Gary, based on that question is it would be something to be very aware of 
if a taxpayer says, well, not only do I want to make a protective refund claim for 965, I want to make a protective refund claim because I think there's a good chance guilty is going to be determined unconstitutional or subpart F. And so if you file that protective refund claim, kind of growing the universe of what could be determined unconstitutional outside of the direct question before the court, which is 965, could you be in a position where the IRS rejects your refund claim in total with the 965? And so while I certainly encourage taxpayers to consider the potential avenue of growing their protective refund claim to other items, they might want to procedurally consider submitting a protective refund claim on just 965 because it is clear as day that that is a protective refund claim and the IRS should put that in abeyance in their inventory while more is being decided. And then submit what I'm kind of terming like a secondary protective refund claim with any other items that the taxpayer believes might be determined unconstitutional and they might be eligible to claim a refund for. Thanks, Mary. I I think it does bear repeating that notwithstanding the commentary, all these provisions are potentially under the microscope. More is really just about 965 and the more decision could have far reaching implications, but it could require more litigation to finally resolve and come to ground on those implications. And I will add, Gary, like particularly, you know, as a procedural person, I particularly am telling people like this isn't a one size fits all. Each taxpayer could have their own statutes. Again, they could have their own examination extensions, their own considerations with 965 installment payments. So it is really important to like look at the specific taxpayers' facts in front of you and how the procedure might best work for that taxpayer in filing a protective refund claim. That's a good reminder that this podcast is not tax or legal advice. Please uh, contact your KPMG advisor. So thank you, Mary and Dan, for joining me and Gary today. The Moore case is obviously important, but it's one of the many TCJA-related cases percolating through the courts, including Altria's challenge to Section 958B4 repeal and FedEx's challenge to the final Section 965 regs as a result of the IRS's denial of foreign tax credits claimed in relation to its so-called Section 965B offset earnings. These cases may have far-reaching implications regarding the future of U.S. international tax, including Pillar 2. So with that, as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. We'll